Our sermon text this morning as we're continuing through 1 Peter and getting close to the end of his letter to the Tur- uh, Christians in ancient Turkey is 1 Peter 4 verses 1 through 6. You can find that in your worship folder. This is God's word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the truth that it contains. And so we ask now that you would speak to us and show us once again the beauty of Christ and his gospel. And then in seeing that, we would also see your holiness and be reminded how we must come to Christ to be forgiven. Strengthen our faith through your word as it is attended to by your spirit as you have promised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue this journey through First Peter and enter now into chapter 4, we're beginning to see a shift in the way he's been addressing this main theme of suffering unjustly for our faith. As the Christians in ancient Turkey to whom he had been writing were being ostracized, maligned, slandered, mocked for their faith, Peter initially sought to encourage them. And so he pointed to them to that eschatological living hope that is promised to them in Jesus. He reminded them who they were as God's chosen and treasured people. He exhorted them to live in a way uh, so as to silence the slandering tongues that were speaking against them and instead turn those tongues to sing praises to God. And as we saw last week, He encouraged them to consider Jesus' suffering for them and what that accomplished by showing them the victory that it brings over sin and all evil. And now that message of encouragement is shifting from encouragement to endurance. And so here in chapter 4, Peter begins to call us to a faith that endures the hardest of trials, a faith that leans into Jesus even more when the winds of suffering begin to turn into a hurricane gale. This is a call to fearless faith and courageous hope. And as the church today, I believe we need to hear Peter's words. We need to be warmed in our hearts with the hope that we have so that we will have a faith to endure a holy resolve for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Just like the believers of Peter's day, we are facing this growing reality that to follow Jesus means we are not only at odds with this present world, but we are in the crosshairs of a culture that utterly despises the things of God, and thus they despise us as God's people. Our faith very well may lead to unjust suffering. At the very least, we are beginning to feel that ostracization and that we are being pushed to the margins of society because we choose to follow Jesus and obey the truth of God revealed to us in his word. And as Peter will tell us later in chapter 4, we shouldn't be surprised by this at all. This is something we should expect as God's people. Rather, we should fill our hearts with resolve by the grace of God Because suffering faith or faith that suffers is the end of sin and suffering and death forever. That's the point of this text. And he begins to show us that by explaining that your faith in Christ does involve suffering, but that suffering is the end of all sin. So he says in verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So we notice that little word since, or two words, since therefore, or therefore, and that should be a key to look back to what he had said prior to this text. And what did he say? Well, he also talked about Christ's suffering. He said, for Christ also suffered once for our sins. This is 3.18. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so he is again reminding us or calling us back to look at Jesus' suffering. But this time, instead of being an encouragement, pointing to the victory that Jesus' suffering brought, he's using it to equip us to be ready for suffering for our faith. And so he says here, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the the same way of thinking that Jesus had when he went to the cross. It's, It's a military image. It's the idea of picking up your sword or uh, strapping on your armor or saddling up your horse, picking up your lance, getting ready to charge into battle. It's a military term. Peter's words here have a wartime feel. In fact, this kind of warrior language, it's common in the New Testament, especially when it comes to exhortations to live our lives in this present world for the glory of God. For example, Romans 13, 12 Paul writes, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And First Thessalonians 5, 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
So we hear this warrior language, uh, living out our faith has this military, this militant aspect to it. And no, we are not engaged in a literal war. We're not called to acts of violence. But the war in which we are engaged is spiritual. And Peter's call here then is consistent uh, with this warrior idea that, that we are to have this grit and this determination and this alertness as God's people being filled with the courage of a warrior spirit. So he says, arm yourselves then. Be like a warrior. And what are we supposed to arm? What's the weapon we're supposed to strap on? He says, the mind of Christ. Particularly the mind of Christ as Uh, in regards to suffering and sin. The same way that Jesus thought about suffering on the cross, Peter says we're to think about suffering for him. And the Bible gives us a very clear look uh, into Jesus' mind as he came to that suffering in the flesh. And we see him there in the garden as the hour of his death draws nigh, and he feels the weight and the pressure of what he was about to do as he prays and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And we hear his voice in agony cry out, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He has this resolve to do the father's will to complete what needed to be completed for the redemption of sinners even though it meant great suffering. And so he will bear the false accusations of the Sanhedrin and later Pilate. He will be mocked and reviled and slandered and abused. And yet through all of that, he remains silent. He does not open his mouth, but he continues to entrust himself to his father. And even as the nails tear through the flesh of his hands and his feet, He did not resist, but he continued to subject himself to that suffering. And as the cross is raised, we observe him in the height of that suffering, bearing all the sins of his people in that one decisive moment, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he willfully, with great resolve, followed God's path for him as the son. And the reason he did that, the reason he suffered that way, well, Peter tells us all through his letter, 1 Peter 2.24, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, uh, to make those who were not God's people to become God's people, 1 Peter 2.10, to cause us to be born again to a living hope, 1.23, and to purify souls, 1 Peter 1.22, to obtain the outcome of your faith, the very salvation of your souls, 1 Peter 1.9, and to cause you to be born again to a living hope, 1 Peter 1.3. He did all of that to put an end to sin in your life. So we summarize Jesus' words or his attitude rather towards suffering like this. Jesus willfully obeyed the Father's will on the cross to bring an end to sin. You see, suffering ends sin. As Peter says here in verse uh, 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
He brought an end to sin by suffering for sinners. And we as his people are called to face suffering for God if we too uh, must do so to bring an end to sin in our lives. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean the same thing that it does in the sense of what Jesus accomplished. We are not dying or suffering to put... Uh, to be that propitiation that was done once and for all by Christ. Christ's death canceled the power and the penalty and one day the presence of sin. But the key here is behind this idea of the mindset of Christ. That is what he's calling us to arm ourselves with. The same mind that Jesus has towards sin. Jesus was done with sin. He didn't want it to exist anymore. He didn't want it to reign in the lives of people anymore. And he was willing to go to the cross to bring an end to it. That's the idea here. Jesus waged war against sin by being willing to die to defeat it once for all. And so in the same way, as believers, we demonstrate that we are done with sin if we are willing to follow Christ, even if it means we must suffer. We will follow Jesus through the fire because we are done with sin in our lives. We want it to be canceled. And so what we can say then is, how do you end sin in your life? Well, through faith in Christ, through a faith that endures even through the hardest of trials. You see, Peter is not saying that if you suffer for your faith, you can reach a state of sinless perfection. That somehow you actually stop sinning in this life. That's not what he's talking about. Again, it is a mindset that we are to arm ourselves with. He's saying that if you have faith, that trust Jesus enough that you are willing to suffer for Him, then it proclaims to you and it proclaims to the world that yes, I am done with sin. I want to kill it in my life. You see, believing in Jesus like that, being that committed to Him, is like pouring poison into the well of sin in your fallen heart. Because that is exactly what Jesus does. He puts sin to death. And so all those dark dragons that you think you cannot slay, in the recesses of your heart, Jesus kills them for you if you but trust in Him. John Owen put it this way. He says that God can make the dry parched ground of my soul to become a pool in my thirsty, barren heart as springs of water. Yes, He can make this habitation of dragons, this heart which is so full of abominable lusts and fiery temptations to be a place of bounty and fruitfulness unto Himself. That is what God can do when we come to Him through Christ. It kills our sin. And really, it comes down then to a matter of whom you will serve. When you trust Jesus to the degree that you are willing to suffer for it, if called upon, it means that you are telling sin in your life, you are not my king any longer. I serve a different king. I am willing to lay down my life for a different king. 
the one who laid down his life for me to make me right in the eyes of God. You see, faith is a question of loyalty and service. Will you be loyal to God through Christ alone, or will you be loyal and serve yourself by giving your sinful heart the desires that it wants? That's the point of verse 2. So the apostle says here, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ when it comes to suffering and sin, and thus demonstrate that you are done with sin, so as, in verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time, that is your life, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So there are two choices here, two competing wills. There is human passion, and there is the will of God. And you cannot serve both. It's either one or the other. Faith calls us to that, to come to Christ and serve Him alone. In fact, Jesus tells us this way back in the Sermon on the Mount when He was talking about laying up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. In Matthew 6.24, He said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that a principle is applied to more than just a, a lust for riches. You see, you either glorify God by coming to Him in faith and seeking to serve Him, or you glorify your own fallen desires by serving them. But when we do lean fully upon Jesus and believe that gospel, Peter says, sometimes you may be called upon to suffer for it. And he gives us a reason why. He says, because the world will abuse God's people for their faith. And here's why they do it. Because it exposes the emptiness of their own sin. You see, when you trust Christ And then from that faith, you demonstrate to the world that, hey, I'm done with sin to the point that I'm willing to suffer to keep myself following after Christ. No matter what you say to me, it makes them look bad. It exposes the sinfulness, the emptiness of their own hearts. Peter says in verses 3 through 4, it says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. When you trust Jesus, you are confessing to the world that sin's day is done. But for those who love their sin more than they love God, that doesn't sit very well with them. Peter speaks here of Gentiles, and he's not talking about ethnicity here. He's talking about Gentiles in a religious sense. He means those who are not part of God's covenant people. They are outside the covenant. They have not tasted of His grace. They have not experienced new life in Jesus Christ and have placed their faith in Him. They are effectively pagans. And when we hear the word pagans, we usually think of uh, idolatrous worshipers of stone or wood idols. But idolatry, as we know, is manifested in so many different forms. Because as humans, we are actually wired. We were created to worship. That is why God made us and placed us in a garden, was to worship Him. 
See, you will worship something or somebody. Ultimately, you either worship God as you were designed to do, or you worship yourself. And this list of vices that Peter lays out demonstrates that. Like this list of sins, these vices, we we see this come up again and again in the New Testament. There are several of these lists. And their purpose is never to comprehensively name every possible sin a person is capable of committing. Rather, it is to highlight the depth of the human heart's corruption apart from Christ. These are examples of those human passions Peter mentioned back in verse 2. And the point is here is that not only are the sinful actions violations of God's holy will for all people, but the very thoughts, the very desires for those sins are a sin themselves. They are a human passion, a fallen, corrupt passion This is what the heart wants when it worships itself. And these sins listed here, it's interesting to note, they are all abuses of God's good gifts that He gives His people. But when those good things are used for our own selfish gratification, rather than being received with thanksgiving to God, they become a dark liturgy that worships itself rather than the very giver of life. And so sex and food and drink all become the rights and substances of our own self-worship. That is the very heart of paganism. Faith in Christ, though, faith that is willing to endure, that is willing to suffer for Him if called upon, exposes the emptiness of that kind of life. And so when the world sees that kind of faith, They react to it. And that reaction, as Peter says here, is one of surprise, but also hate. When you don't engage in the things society and culture likes to engage in, these vices that Peter lists here, these abuses of God's good gifts that are clear violations of God's holy law, when you do that, people are surprised. I mean, why are you living that way? We don't do that. And the more an ungodly behavior becomes normal in society and accepted in culture, the easier it is for people to engage in it. And so when Christians, when God's people do not engage in that sin, or when they at least confess that sin when they do fall into it and seek to kill it by coming to Christ. It surprises people. It's so different. It's weird. It's odd to them. Why do you live that way? And history has proven this to be true again and and again. Let me give you a biblical example. Back in Acts chapter 19, we're uh, given the narrative of the Apostle Paul's church planting ministry in Eastern Asia. And as people begin to uh, turn to Christ in faith and repent of their old sinful idolatrous practices, uh, they do things. They, They confess that the gods made with hands are not gods. Some of them burn, uh, their, uh, texts that were full of, of dark and evil 
modes of worship. And so they leave behind practicing then these old rites of worship that was regular part of social public life of the day. And now those who made a good profit off of the idolatry of the people, um, they were not happy with this. It, it cut into their profits. After all, people are not worshiping idols. And one of these men was named Demetrius. He was a silversmith in Ephesus. He made shrines to the gar- goddess Artemis in Ephesus, the goddess of the hunts. Uh, and, and Ephesus was known for its Artemis worship. And so he gathered other tradesmen who crafted the shrines and idols used in public worship. And he calls them together and he basically incites a riot amongst the people to the point that they rush to where Paul's companions were staying and apprehend some of them. They wanted to kill them, to destroy them. They hated what was happening. And God in his grace spares Paul's companions through the town clerk, the the town magistrate who was able to calm the mob. But that pattern of that surprise and then hatred, we see that again and and again through all of history. And Peter's original audience were facing this similar situation because the pagans of their day were wondering, why aren't you engaging in these same festivals, these same rites of worship that we engage in? This sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry that Peter lists. The Christians there in ancient Turkey were not participating in the public rituals to Bacchus or Saturnalia, these different gods of the Roman pantheon. Instead, they were honoring God through their faith in Christ. And so the people are surprised. You're not like us. And that surprise quickly turns to hate. As Peter says, the pagans maligned his readers for not participating in society's sins. You see, it's, it's not enough the fact that they just don't do it. It bothered them. They could not tolerate the fact that there were people who did not follow along with the sin of society, and so they wanted to be done with them. And it is for that reason that the world will shame, and it will slander, and it will abuse God's people who choose to live by the Spirit in a way that glorifies God. Because it's exposing to the world the very emptiness of their sin. The righteousness of God's people contrasts greatly with the unrighteousness of the ungodly. And they can't stand it because they know their sin is evil. They know it is dark, but they want to do it anyway. And if somebody refuses to engage in the ungodly thinking and behavior, it is revealing that corruption of the human heart. You see, the darkness of sin cannot stand the ray of God's light that shines forth from His people. And for that reason, sometimes God's people do suffer for their faith. But Peter shows us one final thing in this text to encourage this enduring faithfulness to Christ. He doesn't want us to be discouraged even as he calls us to endure. And that is this, is that we... We should be willing to continue to follow Christ, to be faithful to Him, to continue to believe Him because we are done with sin 
Because we know that God has the final word, not this world, when it comes to our life. You see, the kingdoms of this world always claim to be the final authority over everything, especially when it comes to matters of truth and righteousness. This world claims its morals are superior to the holiness of God Almighty. And from this throne of arrogance, uh, God's people are derided and shamed and slandered and mocked. But it is not we who know Jesus who are on the wrong side of history. And we know that because history has yet to be concluded. And if you read the last chapter, we win because Christ wins. You see, the conclusion of all things show that those who are faithful to Christ Enduring the suffering if it comes, showing that they are done with sin, they will be the ones judged as righteous in God's eyes, not the people of this world. And the reward of that judgment is a crown of life. And so Peter writes in verse 5 that those who malign believers and cause them to suffer for their faith will, they will, not might, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, God will vindicate you for your faithfulness to Jesus. This is a reference to the final judgment when Christ returns to make all that is wrong right again. This idea of giving account, of course, is a legal term. It actually has to do with the listing of assets and liabilities, Uh, for example, in a contract. And each and every person will give account before Christ for what they have done. He will have the final word. That is what Jesus says in Revelation 22. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so those who live under this flood of debauchery of which Peter writes, they will give an account for that. Every thought, every word, every deed to the one who knows all things. The one who is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. And not even those who perish in this life will be able to escape His righteous judgment. And so the world then, it doesn't get the last word. It doesn't get to decide what is good and righteous and moral and holy and true. Jesus does. And that is why we not only believe this gospel and trust it for it is our life, it is our righteousness, but we preach it as well. Because we know it is the hope that this dark world needs. Verse 6 reads, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. He says, For this reason, what reason? The judgment of Christ. The fact that all will give account to Him. For this reason, the gospel is preached. Because the gospel is the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, good and evil. And Christ, as the final judge, will judge one to be righteous if they were united to him in faith. 
And so we preach the good news. We preach the gospel. And why do we preach the gospel? Because it puts an end to sin. It transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. It makes the just or the unjust become just. It results in the forgiveness of sins. And so anyone who would believe, anyone who would have faith in Jesus alone, showing that they too are done with sin, they will have life. And they will be judged as righteous in Christ. But even those who have trusted Christ and are now dead, they too will be vindicated in judgment and they will fare better than those who are now living and maligning believers for their faith. That's what the apostle means when he says the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. It was preached to them not when they were dead, but when they were alive and they believed. And then they passed away, but they still had a living hope. You see, sometimes the unbelieving world points to the fact that believers and unbelievers suffer the same things. We, we all get sick. We all die. We all have funerals. And so some people look and they say, well, where's that living hope that you're talking about? Because it sure seems like you are dying just like we are. But Peter says the fact that believers have died is actually a judgment on those who mock. Because those who have died in Christ are not present in this world, but they are alive. They are alive in the Spirit the same way God is alive in the Spirit. And so we have this perfect communion with God both now and for all eternity for sin has entirely ended. And so it's an interesting thing that these believers who are facing this persecution, it's, it's almost ironic. Well, we know they weren't yet being put to death, but eventually they will be for their faith. And these unbelievers are saying, ha, see, you die just like us, and we've even killed some of you. But Peter says, hmm, no, they are not dead. They are alive in the Spirit. And the judgment of God upon them is that they have this life. But you, you are the ones who are walking and living in death, though you're alive in this world. As Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And the gain comes because we are with Christ. And that is the glorious irony of the gospel. To suffer for our faith means the end of all suffering. To suffer our faith means we are done with sin. Thus, to suffer for our faith means the end of death itself. Because death is the very consequence of sin. Now, the temptation is, is that when we face even mild discomfort for our commitment to Jesus, we are tempted to bend our lives to conform them to the world's demands. But here's the thing. Jesus never bends. He never is conformed to what the world says. He doesn't change what he teaches and what he preaches because the world says it's not true or not right. He says what he says with the authority of heaven. He is the king after all. And he is coming as judge. He gets the last word. And so Peter says, Christians, church, arm yourselves 
with this way of thinking. This way of thinking that is willing to be committed to Christ, even if it means I must suffer, because that demonstrates, yeah, I am done with sin in my life. I want to be with Christ. I want to be renewed. And even if I suffer to the point of death, it means that that sin will finally be dead and gone. And I will be alive forevermore with our Father. That is the reward that is promised to those who endure in faith. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that you do uh, give us this truth that sin is put to death in Christ. And when we come to him in faith, our sin is put to death. I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to equip ourselves with this mind that is willing to endure no matter what happens, because without Christ, we are nothing. But with him, every blessing of heaven is ours. And so encourage us, help us to be courageous, to continue to do what you have called us to do, For your name's sake, we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.